to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. been going through the Beatitudes, this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and I've mentioned before that these Beatitudes can really summarize everything that Jesus is about to preach in this sermon. The introduction, you could say. And we've gone through this cycle, this process, more, um, more specifically, of becoming a believer, coming to faith, and the steps that follow that, the steps that build on each other as they, as these first 10 to 11 verses are really kind of like stacking blocks. You're starting with the cornerstone and you build the building on top of that, out from that. Jesus is preaching, blessed are the poor in spirit. They get the, they're, they're the ones who get the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the mourners who mourn deeply over their sin. They're the ones who get to be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They're the ones who inherit the earth. Not the proud, but the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the ones who get to be filled. Not the ones who hunger for the things of this life. Blessed are the merciful. Those are the ones who get to obtain mercy. Those of us who take the mercy that we've been given. And we give that mercy to others. Blessed are the pure in heart. The cleansed. The transformed. They're the ones who get to see God. And today we are talking about verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. They are the ones who get to be called the sons of God. Now, why does he say it this way? Why does he give this description, the son, sonship, to those who are peacemakers? Now, I have a son, Tucker, and a son, Samuel. I have daughters, Alexi and Jayla, um, and they're beautiful children. Very much so, they are very unlike me. (laughs) But there are things that they will always carry with them that are like me throughout their entire life. The older I get, the more I see that there's a lot about me that's just like my dad. I never would have saw that when I was young. But now that I'm a little bit older, (laughs) I can see a lot of similarities between me and my father. And one day, when my father passes away, I'll receive an inheritance from him. That day was, hopefully will be years and years into the future. But when it does happen, as it inevitably does to every person on the earth, we all pass away. The righteous are summoned into glory, and it's a beautiful thing. I'll receive an inheritance from him. In the meantime... I get to see, I'm kind of like him. (laughs) And those of us who get to be called sons of God are those of us who have stored up for us an inheritance, but also we're like God. 
But who is it that is like God and who have an inheritance? The peacemakers. Seems kind of specific. Making peace, that just seems like one of many things that we are delighted to be able to partake in, to make peace. Yeah, we understand making hostility is not the way of the Lord. Uh, that's not the way our lives should be categorized as people who are causing, causingly stirring up strife and harming people and taking advantage of people. You know, that's, that's something that even those who are causing strife and taking advantage of people know they shouldn't be. <laughs> it happens to be financially profitable for many people. But they still know this probably isn't the way I want my kids to grow up. But in the meantime, it's beneficial to me. But even those people know that that's not the way. That the Lord would have them walk. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Let's discuss this. What is a peacemaker? And this is something that I think we need to, to have boiled down a little bit. Because we have this general understanding of what peace is. But I think that perhaps we don't understand the depth of it. A maker, we all know what a maker is. It's somebody who produces or manufactures somebody something. You make something. You put together something. You produce something. Peace. But what is peace? In our heads, we might be thinking, peace, it's just where there's no strife. There's peace. Nobody's fighting, nobody's going to war, nobody's bickering. Peace is the absence of strife. In a way, that's true, but not always necessarily. Jesus stirred up strife. Remember that time in the, in the outer courts of the temple when he walked in there and he started flipping over the money changers' tables? He was stirring up some strife. He made some people mad. He lost money for people. There were some people who went from that and was, were totally angry with Jesus for what he did. We'll talk a little bit more about why he did that, but to whet your appetite, he was actually making peace. He was actually passionate about peace when he did that. But the absence of strife, it's not a definition of what something is. That's just simply stating what it isn't. Peace isn't strife, but what is peace? And the Jews were very familiar with peace. Perhaps you've heard the term shalom. Perhaps you've met a Jew, and they've said to you, shalom. It was a common greeting. That's what they would say to say hello or goodbye. But it didn't mean hello or goodbye. Shalom means peace. They would say this and hear this word said, several times a day as they interacted with people. It was a common greeting and a common parting statement. Just like we say, have a good day, or good to see you. They would say, shalom. Not only that was it a part of their greeting, but <clears throat> their holy city was named after shalom, peace. Jerusalem, salem meaning a derivative of shalom. Jerusalem means the city of shalom, the city of peace. David named two of his sons after Shalom. Solomon. The name Solomon is a derivative of Shalom. And then Absalom. Salom and Ab. Ab meaning father. Salom meaning Shalom. Father of peace. Of course, we know Absalom did not bring much peace. Not in the sense that we understand it. 
Solomon, Absalom, David named his children after Shalom, peace. It was important to David. The holy city of God was named after peace, Shalom, Jerusalem. But what is this? Why is this so important? Contrary to our very simple English way of thinking about peace, peace is not simply the absence of strife. Shalom, when somebody said shalom, or the city of peace, it was not simply stating that this is where strife is absent. It was deeper than that. Shalom, or peace, to the Jew meant harmony, wholeness, completeness, or unity. And when somebody said shalom to you, they were wishing wholeness and well-being and unity upon you and yours, and your life that the pieces would come together for you. These descriptions of harmony, unity, wholeness, completeness, these give us a more accurate depiction of what peace is and the peace that we make as the sons of God. We're not supposed to simply bark at strife. Oh, you're arguing. Stop it. Ah, oh, peace. That's not peacemaking. When the birth of Jesus was announced by the angel, they declared glory to God in the highest. Peace, goodwill to men. In the sense, that angel was saying shalom from God. (laughs) Shalom. But one of the primary objectives of Jesus himself was to bring peace. Not between the Jews and the Romans. Not necessarily between siblings or between rival marketplace merchants but between man and God. That was his primary objective, to bring peace between man and God. We must look at what this peace is, what this shalom looks like between us and God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, please, with me, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this peace brought by Jesus Christ in detail. Let's start in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul is teaching the Ephesians, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, the Ephesian people were not Jews. They were Gentiles. Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. Basically, all that he's just saying, you weren't part of the people of God. You weren't part of the elect nation. That at that time you were without Christ, verse 12, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So here's a picture of the Gentiles, completely separate from God, with absolutely no contact with Him because of who they were. But now, verse 13, he says, In Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For, here's the reason how that happened. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So here he's making the point here that Jesus, bringing peace, first and foremost, okay, more fleshly speaking, brought peace, he brought unification to those who are the people of God and those who were once not the people of God, the Jews and the Gentiles. He destroyed racial divide by making them one, by bringing them together. 
rather than leaving them separate. He did not bring peace by simply destroying anger between Jews and Gentiles, by stopping wars and rumors of wars. He brought peace by bringing both under the covenant of grace together as one body. That was the peace that Jesus brought. And in verse 15, having abolished in his flesh, Jesus' flesh, the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself, Jesus, one new man from the two, thus making peace. His peace brought oneness, unity, wholeness to the election of God, to the grace of God, to the salvation of God. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the enmity there between us and God. Apart from God, we are against him. We are not part of him. We are not unified with him. We are his enemies. We may not be at war with a particular nation, but does that make us their friend? No, there are plenty of nations that we are not at war with, but we're not friends with. In fact, one might say that we hate them or they hate us. There's no friendship there. There's no unity there. We might say we're at peace with them, politically speaking, simply because there's no fighting. But we're not at peace. And between us and God, when we have not been united with God in Christ through the righteousness that he brings to us, through the sacrifice of his body on the tree, the shedding of his blood for the remission of sins, if we have not been brought into his body, been made one with Christ, then we are enemies with God. We are outside of him. We have no part in him. No part. There is no peace brought to you. Those of you who reside outside of the favor and the mercy of God. Because you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. He offered, he's already offered it to you. Favor, grace. He's given it to you. He's, here it is. I got it for you. But if you have not received that personally, if you haven't taken it with thanks, devotion, then you're not one with Christ. And you're at enmity with God. In verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you, who were afar off, and to those who were near. See, he's using this as an example, using the Gentiles and the Jews, this, this rift that existed between them. Now he's using that as an example. Just like many of the things in the Old Testament are, most if not all the things, in some way in today's New Testament era, were pictures of something more spiritual, And he's using this rift between the Jews and Gentiles to show a picture of, hey, God brought you together. The covenant of mercy, the covenant of grace and peace is for everybody, not just, not just the Jews anymore. And what is that a picture of? It's a picture of the fact that God, the Holy One, is now inviting you to become one with Him through His Son. To be unified with Him. That's peace. In verse 18, for through Him, talking about Jesus... We both have access by one Spirit to the Father. In verse 19, 
Now therefore you, have no, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be the what? The sons of God. This is not just for boys. Sons meaning children. <laughs> you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you have been made fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God. You are God's child. It is just as though he gave birth to you. You have been adopted. An adopted child has all the rights of a natural child. All the same rights of a natural child. You have been adopted. You may not have always been part of God. Just like none of us were. When we were born, we were born in sin. There was a time when those of us who are now under God, part of his family, there was a time when we were not part of his family. But he has brought us in. How? Because Christ brought peace. Peace is not simply the absence of hostility. There are plenty of people who are unbelievers who will speak kindly of Jesus. Who will give a certain degree of honor to the scriptures saying it's a, it's a good way to live. They won't fight you when you talk about the gospel, but they're not going to believe it. They're going to say, you know what, That's, I'm glad you shared that with me, but I, don't, I, I have my own way. I have my own way. They're not hostile towards you, but they're not your sibling in Christ. They haven't been given peace. They don't live in true peace. Because the peace of Christ is not just the absence of hostility. The peace of Christ is the presence of unity. Oneness. It's the unification of what was formerly hostile. As a parent, I can very often find myself simply addressing hostility with my children. When my children are fighting, the easy way to handle them is to just say, Stop it, go to your rooms. We've all been there, those of us who have children. Stop fighting. Go to your rooms. And what happens? Do the kids stop fighting and go to their rooms? Most of the time. Sometimes it takes a little bit more prompting. And <laughs> but eventually they stop it and they go to their rooms. Are they fighting anymore? No, they're not fighting anymore. I've stopped the fight. I've quenched the hostility. But I haven't united them. They aren't choosing to, to forsake the hostility and unite themselves together in love. The reason for which they are fighting has not been addressed. I may have disciplined them with the hand, but I have not discipled them in Christ. In the news, we hear about wars and rumors of wars all the time. We hear about this war on terrorism that's been going on since 2001. It's resulted in over 80,000 deaths. There's also, perhaps we don't know about this one, but there's a drug war going on in Mexico between the government and the cartels. It's resulted in over 100,000 deaths in, since 2006. The American Civil War resulted in over 600,000 deaths. Now, Civil War buffs, when Robert E. Lee surrendered at the Appomattox Courthouse, what is their peace all of a sudden in the United States? Everybody put down their arms eventually. 
the guns stopped firing. But was there peace? Is there even peace today? Has racism completely been abolished? Did you know that there are still slaves in America? It's called trafficking. That's slavery. It's given a new name, but it's slavery. There's no peace just because Robert E. Lee surrendered. Peace wasn't made because we were not unified. If the Mexican government stopped raiding the drug cartels, would there be peace? No, there still would not be peace. If we agreed to an armistice with the terrorists, would we have peace in the Middle East? No, we would not. Why? Because the opposing parties still remain, maintain hostility towards each other. We are not one. The intrinsic nature of the factions still stand in opposition to each other. Our hearts, our desires, our ways, our, our goals, our ambitions, they're still against each other. They still oppose each other. The weapons may have been put on the ground, but unity has not been established. I may not hate God, but if my heart and my spirit are not united with His ways, first and foremost, starting with, God has given me a way to be saved, forgiven, and reconciled to Him. I'm going to agree with Him and follow His way and unite myself to Him because He's already given me, you know, you, you, given me favor with which I can be united with Him. That's where we start. Because I'm agreeing with Him. I'm saying, Your way is the way, and I'm going to align myself with Your way. That's where peace starts. When I lay down my desires, my ambitions, and some of us are still living in hostility towards Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ says, forsake everything and follow me. Forsake everything and follow me. Do not long for anything on this earth that does not result in eternal reward. But yet we have not united our spirit with God's spirit. Our will is not his will. We say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but we don't really live that way. We still want what we want. We still want the nice car, the big house, the, the cool things, the, all these different ambitions that we have that we want that God doesn't care about. And they're leading us astray. We're chasing after a mirage, right, Rich? The, the mirage, we think it's going to give us pleasure, and we're pursuing pleasure. We're not pursuing God. Our will is for pleasure. Our will is not for God and His ways. Therefore, we live, remain in hostility. There is no real peace. We may come to church and dress the part and act the part and think we're doing a pretty good job because we read our Bibles and pray every day and grow, grow, grow. But we're still, in all of that, we're hostile because our way has not been united with God's way. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, just before he left the world, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I'm giving you shalom. I'm giving you peace, unity. Not like the world gives it to you. Okay, The world has a way of seeing peace. And we've been talking a little bit about that. 
I'm not giving you the type of peace that the world gives you. The, peace, the world says, if you have lots of money, you will have peace. You won't have to worry about anything. So we get, oh, money, money, money. I need to get that education so I can go get money. And then I buy my cars and my houses and then I don't have any money left, so I'm worried. <laughs> or the market is like, oh my word, the market destroyed my 401k. Now I'm worried. Somebody just shot your horse and your chariot because you're trusting in horses and chariots. So all you see in front of you is emptiness and destruction. And where Jesus says, right after this, my peace I give you, so therefore let not your heart be troubled. Because the type of peace that God gives you gives you the ability to not have a troubled heart. Money does not give you that possibility. You're tr whether you're troubled or not troubled is all dependent on the market. <laughs> and all dependent on it, whether your purchases actually deliver what you expected them to deliver. But that's what the world gives you. The world says, go get your money, go get your stuff, go accumulate and when we, when we agree with the world, our spirit remains hostile with God. But Jesus said, my peace, my peace I give to you. Not the world's peace. I don't give you the same peace that the world provides for you. And because I give you my peace, don't let your hearts be troubled. This statement resonates with Joshua 1.9 when God says, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is with you, being the reason Joshua was not supposed to be afraid. Because God had united his will with Joshua, and he was going to give Joshua great success. When God says with you, it means he is on your side. Therefore, you don't have to be afraid. If God is for you, who can be against you? Paul said. He has united himself with you, he is neither against you, nor is he simply too preoccupied to concern himself with your issues. God is not too preoccupied for you. He is not absent, just because you don't see him in dreams. God said that he is uniting his power with Joshua's commission. Christ said, my peace I give to you, but not as the world gives. This is a peace that allows us to not be overcome with Fear because the God of heaven has brought you into fellowship with him. Does God fail? Does God just leave you out on the front lines with no protection? No, that's not the God we serve. You may feel like that, and if you feel like that, it's probably because you're acting on your own. You have aligned your will with the will of the world. Not that God is still not that God becomes against you at that point, but you have not united yourself with him. Therefore you're afraid. You feel empty, you feel hopeless. But you are a son or a daughter of God. My children are still alive. Thank God. <laughs> not because I'm amazing, but I'm their father, Kristen is their mother, and we are going to do what it takes to make sure they have what they need to not just live, but to flourish. That's what we want. Sometimes we're selfish and we don't do that the way we should. 
But it's my desire as a parent that my children flourish and they have everything they need to do that with. God wants you to flourish, but you're not going to do that if you're united with the world. You have to align yourself with Him. Let those who name the name of Christ abstain from sin. It's not just because God wants you to have all these rules and regulations. It's because He wants you to flourish. You can't do that unless you're aligned with Him. Colossians 1, 19-20 says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Introducing Jesus as the fullness of God. Everything that the Trinity is. And through Him, Jesus, to reconcile to Himself God all things, whether on earth or in heaven, what? Making peace by the blood of the cross. See, again, we see peace being aligned with, being in the same context as unity. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. United, that there be no divisions, that you have the same mind. United in spirit and will and desire together, not quarreling. The Corinthians had a problem with that. There were all sorts of factions in the Corinthian church. And Paul goes throughout the first of Corinthians, talks about division a lot because they had a lot of it. But he's making the point that if you have been at peace with God then you can be at peace with each other. And since you have peace with God, it should be a priority to be united together. Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter 8. Look there real quick. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah! But how does he keep talking? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How do you know that you're at peace with God? Because you're actually united with Him. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So that, in verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, you see the uniting of spirits between us and God. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are living according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and what? Peace. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Those of you who have lined yourselves with the Spirit have peace with God. Because you have submitted your way to His way. You cannot be saved unless you submit yourself to God. That's where it all starts. You submit yourself to God and His way. That doesn't make any sense. All I have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I should be saved? Okay, that's what God said. I align myself with that. 
That's the beginning. That's chapter one. You're saved. You're brought into the adoption of God. You're his children. And how does that play out? The rest of your life follows suit. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. To be carnally minded is death. Because if you're still walking according to your union with the flesh, the carnal mind, the, the carnal just means fleshly, of the earth, carnal things aren't even necessarily sinful. It's just earthly. Stuff that lives and dies in the dust. To be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead. So when he says the body, he's referring back to the carnal life. If the carnal life within you, the body, is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. All of this because of peace. He's brought us together with God. We unite ourselves with him. In all of these passages, the context of peace is unity. Unity that starts with our unity with Christ through faith in his blood. And results in our pursuit of unity with the rest of life, with the rest of mankind. And when when it comes to us, we reveal ourselves to be true children of God when we are passionate about peace. When we see hostility rising up within us, among our members, we are the first to humble ourselves and obey the scriptures when it says, submit to yourselves one another in love. Not because we just don't want to fight, but because we care about unity. We care about being of one mind. We've read in Galatians chapter 5 that those who are given to discord simply are not going to inherit eternal life. Because true sons and daughters of God are peacemakers. But this is not to say that a peacemaker is not willing to be bold and take a stand when necessary. See, now we're getting back to the concept of Jesus was actually pursuing peace when he was flipping over tables and making everybody mad. Peacemaker is willing to be bold and take a stand when necessary, not for the sake of selfish ambition. This is the key. This is not for the sake of a personal vendetta, but because we are passionate about peace. When Jesus broke out in anger in those temple courts, flipping over tables, he quoted Isaiah 56, 7, which says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now what the people were doing was they were setting up stores in the outer courts. The outer courts were reserved for the worship of the Gentiles. Originally there were no stores in that courts, in those courts of the temple. The Gentiles were allowed to come into those outer courts and worship God. They were not allowed to go into the inner courts as according to the law, but they could worship God in those outer courts. And this is where the Jews were setting up shop. Now, can you imagine, we're here in, church, in a church service. Can you imagine if, some, if there was a car salesman over here and a real estate agent over here and, and all these other salespeople in here kind of doing business, trying to get you to buy something while we're trying to worship here? <laughs> can you imagine how that would go? Would you be learning much? Would you be able to worship? Would you be able to focus and align yourself with God in this time? That's what the Jews were doing. 
They were making it impossible for Gentiles to come and worship. They're making it impossible. That's why Jesus quoted that passage. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. Most of us can't even pray if the radio is on. Because we need to focus. The Jews were setting up shop in that portion of the temple. And therefore, rejecting the Lord's will for all nations to be blessed. They were creating strife, disunity. They were not allowing those who would come and worship to come and worship. So when Christ was angrily flipping over the tables of the money changers, it seemed that he was just causing strife and just angry because, yeah, okay, the people were materialistic too. They were sinning because of that. But he was really angry because the people were rejecting the Gentiles, people that God wanted to bring peace to. So we see that anger and strife themselves are not the enemy, okay, of the peacemaker. In fact, they can be necessary in certain circumstances when Christ's unity is at stake. And sometimes if we just stand back and do nothing, we become the enemy of peace. Because there's a deeper peace that we should be passionate about. This is also why the Bible requires church discipline, the kicking out of people, (laughs) Um, to be carried out when somebody rises up among the members who through unrepentant sin or false teaching is going to bring factions into the church. Not because, we des- not because we like kicking people out and disciplining and being harsh to people, but because, the sake of, because of the sake of the bond of unity. We do it for their sake too, the Bible says, because we hope that through the discipline that they might unite themselves again. Even in discipline, the, the pursuit is unity. Even though you're separating yourself with somebody, you're separating yourself with somebody because you're hoping that it'll produce unity. Because we're peacemakers. A peacemaker is also not someone who simply stays out of a battle. Jesus showed us the grand example when he, for the sake of peace, sacrificed everything, his own life, spilled out all of his blood so that we could find peace with God. He sacrificed everything. He walked on this earth with nothing. He was born into nothing, though he had the rights to all, etern- all the eternal kingdom. Sacrificed everything so that he could enter into the battle and bring peace. Following his example, true sons and daughters of God are ready to endure hardship and sacrifice, even being cut off from his own family and church because of his longing for the peace of his people. Did you know that Martin Luther... He was a Catholic monk. When he first came to the gospel, he didn't leave the Catholic church. He stayed because he wanted to try to purify it, to try to bring peace, the peace of God to the church of, to the, to the church of Rome. He didn't leave it right away. He only left when he found out that peace was impossible for them. They were not going to repent. They were not going to accept the gospel. So then he went and he started his own, his own ministry. But at first, he desired to bring peace. He desired to bring these people into alignment with God's ways. Father of the Reformation. And Paul said, if only that some might be saved, he was willing and ready to burn in hell himself for the sake of the Jews who had rejected the gospel. Because he was a peacemaker, willing to sacrifice everything. 
A peacemaker is someone who is zealous, passionate, full of ambition. But they are so about the right things. They're, they're somebody who is not all about just posting controversial subjects on Facebook, trying to stand out from in the public eye, causing rifts, causing strife, and stirring things up. But no, he's precise. He, is, he observes the people around him and says, how can I bring these people to God? Not how can I stir up strife and try to get people thinking about what I want them to think about. It's not a personal vendetta. But this is a person who sees those around him. Just like God did. He observed the world and saw that it was wicked and evil. And from, from eternity past, he planned in his heart to send a peacemaker who would be able to reconcile us to God. And that man was Christ Jesus. The thousands of years of Israel's history filled with wars and strife and sin. All of that God used to bring about salvation for all people. <clears throat> the point is this. If you have received the peace of God, you're no, you are a friend of God. You're no longer a friend of the world. The world is not pleasant to you. It's... it's beautiful things, it's shiny objects. You can easily look straight forward. Not easily, it's harder than sometimes we like to admit. But it reminds me of a story in The Pilgrim's Progress when Christian, the main character of the story, he's walking through the town of Vanity Fair. The town of Vanity Fair is a town, you think of Las Vegas, all of your dreams can come true. You can have, find any sort of pleasure that you want to fulfill any desire of your body, or your mind, or your eyes. You can have anything you want. Buy anything, do anything, no regrets. And in the, in the story, I can't remember it verbatim, but basically said that Christian and his companion, I think, his, I think at that point his companion was hopeful maybe, I don't, can't remember exactly who, which one it was, but they just they determined within themselves that they would look straight forward in the path so that they might make it through Vanity Fair. And every time a shiny object was put in their face, they would reject it and say, No, eternal life, eternal life! And they would keep going forward. They would reject the things that were offered to them. Though those things that were offered to them could satisfy them in their journey. But no, they had eternal life on, the, on their minds. They would not be distracted, for to, to be carnally minded is death. To be given to appetite is death. It is enmity with God. But rather the peace of God brings you into fellowship with Him, and it brings your mind and your spirit in alignment, or at least makes it possible that you might seek His things and be satisfied in His fountain, rather than being satisfied with licking the dry walls of wells that hold no water, We are reconcilers. We are people who seek unity. When things are hard, we don't just reject the hard person. No, we seek unity. We don't set ourselves in opposition to somebody just so we can make a dime. 
No, we seek unity. We'd rather lose out on a good deal and, main, and develop unity with a person for the sake of Christ than to have that deal and lose out on eternity. That's what a peacemaker is. It's not somebody who runs and hides from hostility, but someone who engages it, not because they like a fight, but because they want to bring peace. They want to bring people into unity with God. And you are a willing participant in the will of God to bring peace, goodwill to men. You will not simply be satisfied, though you will participate in, but you will not be satisfied with simple acts of goodness and charity because you cannot stand to see people living at enmity with God. It's not okay for them to just be friends of yours. They need to be friends with God. We're not people who are just trying to make people comfortable before they die and go to hell. People need to be friends with God, sons of God. We're not satisfied with simply doing good, but we see the people, and we see these people have been given favor from God, but they refuse it. They are not at peace with Him. They need to be made, they need to be friends of God, sons of God. I'm still going to take care of their needs because I am a compassionate person, merciful. And I'm willing to feed those poor. And I'm ready to do so. Because I love them and I'm compassionate to their blight, plight. But you know what? There's, an, there's another plight. That person may be fed today, but what about tomorrow? What about eternity? So let's be makers of peace, not just with ourselves, but with God. God and those whom He has given favor to that still need to see it. I thank you, Lord, for your favor. I thank you for making peace with us when you didn't have to. We're the ones who fought against you. We're the ones who strive against you. We're the ones who set ourselves up against you. And Lord, you could have crushed us with just a word of your mouth, a breath from your lungs. We know that you can do it. We've seen your mighty hand come out against sin. Yet, Lord, you have chosen to make a way for peace with us because you love us. Not because we are lovable, but because you are love. You are better than us. It is hard for us to love the unlovable. But you love us with an intense favor when we have absolutely nothing worthy of your love. You have desired to make sons and daughters out of we who are in the gutters of depravity. Every one of us. You held out your hand with an invitation to come and dine at your table. You have offered us white robes, clean robes. To replace our filth. You have cleansed us. You have washed us from our sin. And made us worthy to be in the King's presence. And I thank you for that, Lord. And I 
for bringing us into peace with you. And I just pray that you would help us to go forth in the same vigor that you have come to us with, to sacrifice, to lay aside our ambitions and our comforts so that peace may go forth. Help us as we go from here to keep your will on our minds, to align ourselves with you and your ways, and not be distracted with the things of the earth that chain us to that which perishes. In Jesus' name, amen.